Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest, a returning guest. We've done a number of shows together. His name is Mike Rothmiller, and he just published a book in September 2022, with, and he wrote it with Douglas Thompson, another of my guests. And the title of the book, if you can see this on YouTube or Twitter, is Frank Sinatra and the Mafia Murders. And there's a Kindle, an audio book version of this book. But this is not the first time Mike and I have talked together. He's, he's a very prolific author. He's done a lot of recent books. He's put out a lot of books recently. But the last one we talked about was the Af African slave trade and cannibalism. And I'll put links to these shows in the notes. So if you listen to this, you can just scroll down and find those earlier, these earlier interviews I've done with him. But another one was uh, really an internationally best-selling book. And the title of that interview book is Bombshell, The Night Bobby Kennedy Killed Marilyn Monroe. That was also with Doug Thompson. That was 2021. Then we also talked about secrets, lies, and deception, top secret presidential telephone tra transcripts, top secret presidential letters, top secret documents, and other amazing pieces of history. That's a two-volume book. And uh, Mr. Rothmiller has enjoyed a distinguished career in law enforcement, working across U.S. federal and state agencies with American and international intelligence services. He served for 10 years with the Los Angeles Police Department, including five years as a deep undercover detective with the Organized Crime Intelligence Division, or the OCID. He's a regular commentator on law enforcement and worldwide intelligence matters across America and throughout the world. He is a New York Times bestselling author of 23 nonfiction books, so very prolific author. Some of the other titles are L.A. Secret Police Inside the LAPD Elites by Network, True Crime Chronicles, Volume 1 and 2, also Serial Killer, Dr. H.H. Holmes Speaks. He tells his story from a prison cell. And then Cayman Snakes and Lightning, Defying Death in the Amazon 2021. But also as co-author, I did an interview with him about an interesting story, kind of like the Epstein of the U.K. back in the 60s and 70s, up until his death, Stephen Ward. And the title of the book that I interviewed Doug Thompson about is Stephen Ward's Scapegoat. A uh, really fascinating story about the Profumo affair. But again, Mike Roth Miller is back. And we're going to talk about this book he just published. Very interesting. The title of that book is Frank Sinatra and the Mafia Murders. So, Mike Roth Miller, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. So, for people who may not have heard our earlier interviews, I did a brief bio. Can you kind of talk about uh, your writing, your putting out many books, and what led you to put this particular book together, Frank Sinatra and the Mafia Murders together? I started writing uh, my first book back in uh, 1993, which was a New York Times bestseller about the LAPD intelligence network, we, how we were spying, who we were spying on, and so forth. Uh, so through the years, I, my interest is in nonfiction and doing investigations. And so uh, I've gone over, oh, geez, probably... 10,000 documents I've received from the federal government, CIA, from Freedom Information Acts and from mandatory declassification reviews. And some of those I turned into books, um, which you mentioned. And after we did Bombshell, Doug and I, uh, on the death of Marilyn Monroe, we were discussing a poss possibly the next book. And Frank Sinatra was a natural because when I was working OCID, I had access to all the secret dossiers on Sinatra, Monroe, the Kennedys, you name it, all the mob guys. So I knew a lot of inside information about Sinatra. And uh, Doug knew some information, too, from his reporting when he was a reporter. So we decided that was the way to go. Our uh, publisher, Adlib, in London, 
they loved the idea. And so that was the genesis of this book. Right. And so you had those the secret documents. We've talked about your work at the OCID in past interviews. But there was a lot about Sinatra that they didn't want, that his handlers and people surrounding him did not want public, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, primarily, it was his close, close working relationship with the mob. And when I'm talking about the mob, I'm not just talking about one guy. I'm talking about the traditional mafia and the different families, whether they were in New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, L.A., wherever they were, he had a very close relationship with them. And that stems from his childhood, uh, where he was born and growing up. His mother was uh, a midwife and also doing abortions. And his father was kind of a bartender, a little bit of muscle for some mob guys. And uh, they said like a second-rate boxer, bantamweight. And so Frank grew up with this. He saw it all around him when he was a child. Some of the people in his neighborhood growing up were mob guys, and he knew it. Um, and he didn't say anything wrong with that. He just said, this is life. And that was life as far as he knew it. So he grew up in it. And as he started singing uh, in his teens, he would sing in the bar where his father worked his mother once. And he was singing for basically a meal and maybe a pack of cigarettes. And the mob got to like him. They said, he's a good kid. And they decided to help him out in his career. And, uh, they helped him out for many, many years. Right. So it started very young. He was in Hoboken, New Jersey, right? So he's across the river from Manhattan. So he's in, just grew up in that environment. And it really, they, somebody was kind of, he always had something to rely on uh, family from different parts. Like you talk about him with these Fischetti brothers and very early going to Cuba with the, I think it's a very well-known kind of mob meeting where everybody was there. Can you talk about, his relationships with some of those people? Sure. Um, well, first I'll go into his going to Cuba. Uh, that was when Lucky Luciano and a lot of the guys were down there for a meeting. And Cuba was still controlled a lot of it by the mob as far as gambling and so forth. And the Fischetti brothers asked him, because he already owed them quite a bit, to carry suitcases down to uh, Cuba and in the suitcase was $2 million in cash. And so he did that. And uh, they brought him down under the guise of that he's going to entertain because he's starting to be known then. He's going to entertain everybody and sing for them. And they enjoyed that. And while he was there, he was spending a lot of time with Lucky Luciano. And uh, there were photos taken of him. He wasn't trying to hide it. He was walking on the streets with Lucky. They'd go for a walk. They'd go to dinner, different places. And so he had a very, very close association with Lucky Luciano. And that was because Lucky had already helped him out when he was starting to get, well, known, let's put it that way. Uh, Lucky and some other people, they put up $50,000 at that time to promote him. And basically the deal was, we're going to help you and you're going to help us. That's what it came down to. And so that occurred. And... Um, they helped him throughout his life. And then the Fischetti brothers, they're really interesting. And most people have never heard about them, but they were cousins of Al Capone. And they started working for Al Capone as enforcers. And uh, they started running their own, you want to say, mob operations uh, under Capone's umbrella. And Frank and the Fischetti brothers became very close. And not just for a short time, over 
their lifetimes. And uh, they're the ones that gave Frank the two million on behalf of the Chicago outfit to take down to Cuba. And also when Frank would visit uh, Illinois and Chicago in that area, he would spend the time with the Fischetti brothers. He would stay at their house as a house guest. They would do whatever they wanted to do together. They would drive him around, introducing him to all the other mob guys, the outfit guys in Chicago. And uh, also when they started opening up some car dealerships, Frank did a free commercial for them. And he said it was free, but really what it was, they would give him cash and they'd give him new cars as payment. And I don't know if Frank ever filed that on his income tax as far as an income, but probably not. But uh, they maintained a very close working relationship for years and years. And he had a deep respect for them as he did for William Moriarty, who was the uh, underboss of the Genovese family who helped him out early on too. And he had a deep respect for them. One from his growing up, his childhood and adolescence, he knew they wielded power. He knew they could uh, take care of problems in their own fashion and you never have that problem again. So he was wanted to stay close to them because they could help him out, but also he had a great deal of respect for them and fear. He knew if he crossed them, he's going to end up like so many other people ended up. Uh, so it was a long-term relationship, but it was primarily with the Chicago mob because they pretty much controlled a lot of what was going on in Los Angeles. So between those two areas, he was very tight with the Chicago mob. And uh, also when he'd go to <clears throat> New York or other places, the other mob families, the Gambinos, the bosses, the godfathers, we get together, they'd go have dinner with him. They'd go, if he was entertaining, they would go to his concerts and so forth. Yeah, so it's a very close, close relationship. It was never really covered. There may have been kind of rumors or innuendo, but it was a very tight, uh, kept secret of how really, how close he really was for a most of his life, I think. But they were solving problems for him. And but he had that he would sing it there once Las Vegas became established, right? He was an, an essential part of bringing in uh, bringing in gamblers and people, right? Yes, and uh, you'll remember the name Bugsy Siegel. Uh, Bugsy pretty much started the new Vegas, and uh, he was a front man out there for the mob, and then he was assassinated in Los Angeles. Uh, <clears throat> Frank. When Bugsy was alive in Los Angeles, Frank really had a fear and a reverence for him. It was very, very strange. And uh, when he and Phil Silvers, the actor, would get together, they'd have dinner somewhere. If Bugsy walked into the restaurant, they would stop what they were doing, whoever they're with, they would stand up and nod to him, say, good evening, Mr. Siegel, how are you tonight or this morning or whatever it was. Uh, and it was a really strange relationship because they would also start having conversations about Bugsy, not with Bugsy, but Phil Silvers and Frank, about how Bugsy would murder people and how he liked to murder people. Did he prefer to shoot them? Did he prefer to kill them with an axe or a baseball bat and so forth? And so it was very interesting, um, if you want to say, the respect that Frank was giving to Bugsy Siegel. And uh, 
it's probably a lot out of fear too. Right, and that seems to be the theme, and that's like the theme in all the mafia movies too, right? It's respect. That's a real kind of currency in his life and how he survived. Like he he was hanging out with really brutal people, and the, the another person is Johnny Rosselli, who's a real contacts guy. He knew him, Korshak. Can you talk about some of those LA characters who knew Sinatra and helped him out? Yeah, well, the uh, various members of the Nick Licata family, that was the like the first family within Los Angeles. And then there are a couple other people came into play after that. But uh, Sidney Korshak was an attorney and uh, he was probably the most powerful attorney within the entertainment industry across the country. And he represented Frank and he represented some mob guys too. And if Sidney wanted something or for, from the unions, the labor unions within the entertainment industry, he would just place a call and he could shut down a movie set. He could shut down a television studio. He'd just call them, say, shut them down. Have you guys walk off? They'd walk off. So when Sydney spoke, the entertainment industry listened to him because you want to say the respect they had or the fear they had for him. Frank uh, had him as his attorney for quite some time. And he played the middleman between Frank and a lot of the mob for various reasons, obviously, because uh, Frank was under surveillance a lot when he was in Southern California by LAPD intelligence, the unit I worked, uh, OCID, and he's also periodically surveilled by the FBI. But uh, he would go to various meetings and sometimes uh, Johnny Roselli showed up and Johnny was handsome Johnny as he's known and uh, he was kind of the fixer and the middleman between the Chicago mob, between the Godfather of Chicago and the entertainment industry. And you may remember there was a scene in the Godfather movie where a guy's horse head was placed in his bed. Well, that was based on Johnny Roselli going to the head of Columbia Pictures when Frank wanted a part of the movie uh, from here to eternity. They weren't gonna give it to him, they didn't want him. And so all of that was taken off of real life and Roselli went and had a chat with uh, Cone, who headed Columbia, and said, you either give him that part, or basically you're dead. And that's how he got the part. And uh, fortunately, there are no horses involved at that time. But the but mob- There's also, sorry to interrupt, but there's also yeah. kind of a singer in The Godfather, at least the one or two, who kind of is based off Sinatra, right? Or- yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what theoretically is supposed to be. Uh, so <clears throat> you had Roselli out in California, um, basically running interference for the mob and overseeing the mob's interest within the entertainment industry. But that also extended into Las Vegas. And that was also keeping an eye on Frank and some of the other people they were, if you want to say managing in some senses. Uh, <clears throat> so Frank knew that and Frank would secretly meet with him. But where the meetings really took place were in Palm Springs, because during the winter, during that time, and up until probably the early 80s, the East Coast mob guys, a lot of them, especially the Godfathers and underboss, they would spend the winter in Palm Springs and the Coachella Valley. And uh, that was just to get away from the snow and so forth. But when they were there, there was a truce. 
and nobody would get hurt. Nobody would theoretically pull any crimes. And they would get together and play golf, have dinner, meet at different people's homes. And Frank had a house there. And Frank would go down and he didn't realize it, but he was being surveilled a lot of the times. And he would have meetings with these guys at their homes. He would go to them. They didn't come to him. And that's, once again, showing the respect that he had for the mob bosses who basically made him. And uh, not that he's a made man, made his career. <laughs> I'm talking right. about And uh, so he was surveilled many times going, meeting with some of the mob bosses, some of the other bosses. Sometimes they'd go to a restaurant and they would walk in the front door and all of them would walk out through the back door, through the kitchen and meet someplace else or in the back room of the restaurant. So that was quite well known by law enforcement intelligence. Uh, and the media never picked up on that while they were down there, while this was going on. I suspect some of the media were told, but they didn't want to get involved. They just let it lie. I'd rather have a career and talk to Frank and not have to deal with the mafia myself. So uh, it was very interesting, his career, his movements while he was in California. Right. And you, I think it's you wrote in the book that he had like Sinatra be moved to Palm Springs at one point and kind of made it his home or an outpost for him. And there were like, there was a story in the book about him and Ava Gardner, like driving around and shooting and it got all got covered up. Can you talk about kind of like some of these things where he would get in trouble and it would all get uh, taken care of swept under the rug. Yeah. Taking care of his better work. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of episodes like that throughout his life where he would have too much to drink or he actually started to believe that he was a mob guy. Uh, that he would go with more power than he did in the mob. And when they were down Palm Springs, he and Ava Gardner, when he was seeing her, basically went out, had a good time, and they started driving down the street, pulled out a pistol, started shooting at things. And uh, they were caught, but because who he was, and it was Palm Springs at the time, it was just quietly, quietly taken care of. And that was the end of it. Um, there was another one when... Uh, the grand jury was looking to subpoena Frank to testify. He was avoiding the subpoena. He was hiding out. And so <clears throat> they couldn't find him in Los Angeles. So what happened, OCID, LAP Intelligence, was given the task and the subpoena to go find him and serve him. So they started looking around and they found out that he was down at Palm Springs at his house, uh, which he thought nobody knew. And so they went down there and they started looking for him. I mean, every club that they went to and restaurants say, hey, Frank here's when they said, well, he was here yesterday or the day before, or he just left. So they decided uh, to go to his house. Uh, it was late at night and it was kind of interesting. They saw a policewoman they knew from LAPD was down there vacation. So they asked her, said, hey, you want to come with us? We're going to try to serve Frank Sinatra subpoena with love to have you do it because you're a woman he won't be frightened of you or you're skittish and so she said, sure sure so they went to his house and uh they went up she went up to the door and she's knocking and so forth and uh, there's no answer because now it's, it's late at night and uh, so finally <clears throat> they decide the guy from ocid he never admitted it but we know what happened he was a a locksmith too, so he had a, a lock pick 
tip. So they went in there and they picked the lock on the front door of Sinatra's house and walked in. And so there's these two cops from OCID, this police phone, and they're walking down the hallway and they hear some snoring in a room. They open it up, the door, and they walk in the bedroom and they look and they said, they see a guy sleeping. They said, that can't be him because he's an old guy. He's bald and his teeth are sitting on the nightstand next to him. So it can't be Frank. So we go to another room, uh, bedroom, and there's a woman in there and they wake her up and said, hey, you know, uh, she was startled. So where's Frank? She goes, oh, he's across the hall in the, in the bedroom. And they go, that's him? And she says, yeah. So they went over there and they woke him up. He panics, uh, obviously surprised that these cops are in his house. They give him the subpoena, said, you've been subpoenaed. And uh, he was probably, about that time, he was very upset, but he threatened them, which is, you know, something I think anybody would pretty much say. Uh, but they said he never had time to put on his hairpiece to put his teeth back in. Right. And now he got his teeth knocked out in a fight. Like he was always brawling or fighting and like kind of scrapping, right? Didn't he get his teeth knocked out? I think that's why he had fake teeth. Yeah, some of them, one? but then through just uh, back then dental hygiene, uh, most people lost their teeth and ended up with dentures. And he was one of them. And so, uh, yeah, he was. <clears throat> Growing up, he thought he was a tough guy, but he really wasn't. And so he was in a, a number of fights for various reasons, but uh, it always seemed that he lost every fight, except for when the mob guys helped him out. Uh, right. He, he, back in his early days, he wasn't very, uh, he wasn't physically imposing. I think he wrote in the book, he's like 130 pounds or something, but he yeah, tried to, like his dad, Punch yeah, exactly. He was a small guy, and uh, even some of the other women made a comment about his body biological <laughs> aspects in the book, but it won't get into that now. But uh, yeah, but he was yeah. a pretty, very active womanizer, too, right? Like, he, I mean, he just led a very, very curious early life in his early days. But um, all some of those people that you mentioned, too, ended up dead, like Willie Moretti ended up dead. Um, there was who else got shot? It was oh, Roselli ended up dead too in the seventies, right? And there, yeah, there were up, uh, they found his body in a fifty-five gallon drum in Tampa Bay or somewhere in Florida, floating. Uh, but that was that was all interesting because he was real tight with Sam Giacana. Sam Giacana probably paid, played the biggest role in Frank's life. Uh, and at the time, he was the head of the Chicago mob and so forth. And Frank just really, if you want to say, obeyed him, what he asked for. And then he was also in business with him in the Cal Neva Lodge up at Lake Tahoe. Uh, Frank always said that he had no interest in it, meaning uh, Giancana had no interest, ownership in it. He was never there. He never saw him. But he was. There were surveillance photographs of Giancana there with Frank and some other mob guys. And uh, Giancana basically put up most of the money for it. But uh, it was a long, long relationship. And then Frank was the middleman between, go back to John Kennedy. Frank was the middleman between Sam Giancana, the mob, and John Kennedy when he was running for president. And uh, so the mob... And that was a key, the, that was a key to his election was... The votes that came in in Chicago too in 1960, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just a, a side note, that's not in the book, but 
I interviewed uh, in Palm Springs, Tony Ocado in about 78, 79. He was spending the winter. I drove down there, identified myself where I was. And he said, what do you want? You know, I said, I just want to talk to you. And I asked him specifically about elections in Illinois and Chicago. I said, well, how did you guys uh, control the elections? He says, well, I didn't do anything personally, but I heard, I heard stories. You know, he, he's like, I said, well, what stories did you hear? He says, well, you know, yeah, yeah, there was some union control, and we'd ask the unions to do certain things. But he says, you know, the important part of an election, swaying an election, he says, if you're going to do that, he says, is not getting the voters. He says, it's getting the people who count the votes. And he says, and he says, now I don't know. Again, he says, but I, I've heard that's what happened in Chicago and some other places when John Kennedy and like John Daly was running for the mayor. Illinois and Chicago and so forth. Um, so it was rather interesting coming from the former godfather talking about the rumors that he heard, you know, but he knew right, nothing about right. it. The rumors. Yeah. Right. I mean, but that was key. And now that was kind of why the mob got angry at the Kennedys because they helped him out. Then Bobby. And that ties in the Cal Neva and Sinatra ties into your earlier book, Bombshell, too, right? Exactly. Uh, they decided what, what happened. Frank went and had a, a meeting through, well, through his turn set with uh, Joe Kennedy, the father. And he, Kennedy, wanted the meeting. So they got together and what, what's the deal? He says, well, we need your friend's help. We'd really be appreciated in Chicago and some other places, West Virginia and so forth. For the election, can you help and have your friends help? And Sinatra knew what he was talking about. And, and so he said, sure. So that's when he went. And had a, got in touch with Sam Giancana and said, this is what Father Kennedy was asking for. Uh, can you help? And they said, sure, we'll help. Because they thought at that stage, if he gets in, JFK will owe them big time. And uh, that will cause them to basically lay off the investigations on the mob as far as bookmaking, gambling, prostitution, and so forth. Well, when they got in, it turned out to be just the opposite. Uh, RFK, Robert Kennedy started going after them and they were really mad about that. And, uh, but some of that calmed down a bit is that JFK was having an affair with a woman named Judith Exner at the time. Judith was the girlfriend of Sam Giancana. And so when she wasn't with Sam, she would meet with the JFK somewhere when he's president and even before he's president. And so one day JFK calls Sam G. Well, he, he doesn't know it's Sam's house. He's got a phone number where Judith is at. So he calls Judith and he's talking to her. Well, what he didn't realize the FBI had a wiretap going on that phone. That was Sam G and Connor's house. She was at. And so he's talking to Judith, blah, blah, blah. So J. Edgar Hoover gets the recording and, uh, calls on Robert Kennedy, this is what the intelligence says, and uh, said, hey, I want you to listen to this uh, audio recording of your brother and this woman. And he said, well, who's one? He said, Judith Etchner. Just so you know, she has to be the girlfriend of Sam Giancana, the head of the Chicago mob. And she's at Sam's house when your brother's talking to her. And so it's basically, Hoover said, don't worry, it's our secret, it's safe with me. But at that stage, Hoover knew 
he was never going to be replaced at the FBI as long as the Kennedys were in. Um, so it was a very interesting connection between them. And Sinatra played the middleman and all this with Judith and so forth, introducing her to Sam Giancana. So you see the mob, you see the president, you see politicians and Frank, and they're all in the same circle. Right. It's just incredible. It's this incredible mix of different things. And that's Korshak too, was like above board, but also sub Rosa with all these gangsters and mobsters and blackmail. Right. And so it's not just uh, uh, Hoover, but Kafauver too was looking into this stuff in the fifties and it involved all these guys too. Right. Wasn't that what there was that meeting that Sinatra had, he was either deposed at the Rockefeller center or something. Can you talk about that? Like they wanted him, he agreed to do it at 4 a.m. Yeah, it was uh, part of the federal investigation into the mob and his connection and so forth. And he didn't want to show up. And so uh, he was fighting. And then they finally made accommodations for him that they would meet at a hotel in the middle of the night. And they'd talk to him then. And so they started asking him questions. And the uh, attorney, potentially a prosecuting attorney, was asking him questions. And Sinatra lied across the board. It just, he denied everything. Well, do you know Sam Giancana? No. And this guy's got a stack of photographs when they're together. Do you know Lucky Luciano? No, I never heard of him. Well, here's some photos of you in Havana with him, you know, this sort of thing. So it went on and on. But it was interesting that they, they showed that difference to him and said, okay, we'll meet with you where you want to meet, as opposed to dragging him in front of cameras and everything. Uh, as they generally did for the Kefauver hearings, some other ones. Um, but it was very interesting because they didn't prosecute him on anything, even though he was lying, giving, he was completely lying to FBI agents there. He lied to them, but. They, they yeah, he's perjuring himself. Death. That's a charge. You could definitely be taken to, you know, get a criminal charge and be prosecuted for that. Oh, absolutely. Lying to the feds. And, uh, but that was just, it was a different time. And the feds knew the power that, or they suspected he had a lot of power through the mob. And it wasn't just Chicago, Chicago, New York, Philly, Detroit, you know, Miami, New Orleans, Los Angeles. He had connections with all the families. So it was a very interesting situation how the, the feds were pushing him, but he actually started to believe that he was a powerful mafia godfather in his own world. Uh, and there are other stories that we learned from talking to people that knew him and knew the mob who were dealing with him, um, where he would basically want somebody beaten or hit and it happened to be it was a mob person. And they'd go, yeah, Fra okay, Frank, we'll take care of it. In one example, there was a run-in he had in Las Vegas with uh, a pit boss. And what a pit boss is part of, the Chicago mob, and he was, uh, and Frank didn't know that, and he, he got upset with this guy over something. They were screaming. Uh, Frank called his friends in Chicago, said, "I want this guy taken care of. I want him, you know, hit for a better term." And they said, "What was the problem, Frank? Who is it?" So he tells them, "They go, okay, okay, we'll, we'll take care of. He, he's going to be gone. Don't worry about it." Well, they just moved him up to Reno. This other guy, they took him out, and Frank thought, huh, boy, that guy's in the desert now. I took care of it. But he didn't. They just said, 
okay, Frank, we got it. We got it. And uh, they just transferred the guy. Then brought him back later. And he, Sinatra's career, he had definite ebbed and, and high. Like now he's like one of the greatest singers of all time. But he wasn't always assured of like being the top. I guess when he went back to Vegas, that probably, when he, the Rat Pack and stuff like that kind of assured it. But there were questions, you know, in the 50s, whether he was going to be as influential as he became, right? Exactly. Um, he was pretty much on the brink of being broke for a while because uh, he just, he had bills like crazy. Uh, he and Nancy separated. He had kids support. And the mob didn't like that because it, it drew too much attention to him. And they were saying, hey, you know, go back to your wife and family. You can do what you want, you know, beyond that, but don't have it out in front so everybody can see it. And uh, it was to the point where they were looking at him as not being a money machine, a cash cow for them anymore. And he was starting to draw a lot of attention to them, unwarranted attention, and they felt unnecessary attention because of philandering and things he was doing. And there was one time some of the mob people started talking about, well, maybe it's time for him to go. And they weren't talking about leaving the country. They are talking about killing him. Uh, but through Gene Khan and some of the other ones, hey, he's our friend. He's been our friend for years. Let's just back off. And then, like I said, after from here to eternity and so forth, um, he started coming back. And uh, then, as you mentioned, the Rat Pack and so forth. When that pretty much formed in Vegas, uh, that was his rejuvenation. Like, yeah, it wasn't a shirt. Like, so it was him, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin. Joey Dave. Bishop. Joey Bishop. Yeah, so forth. Um, and just like, well, in the book we have, a, a lot of people don't know how Dean Martin started. Dean Martin started as a mob, pretty much a little low-level mob guy. And uh, he changed his name and uh, ended up with Jerry Lewis and the rest is history. But... It was interesting because Frank was, if you want to say, chairman of the board, which he was going by when they had the Rat Pack and everything. And uh, he did some good things. He did some good things for charity. He helped out Sammy Davis and a lot of African-Americans along the line. Uh, so it wasn't all bad, but uh, there were some bad parts of Frank. He wasn't a, a real likable guy, and he was uh, very vengeful. If you crossed him in any fashion that was it you're done and uh, that's exactly what happened with john kennedy when he was president he was supposed to come down and spend time with a few days with frank at his house in palm springs frank had it all decked out remodeled a suite for new lines phone lines put in for the secret service and everybody and he was supposed to come in and stay with him and at the last minute he canceled and it was up to Peter Lawford to tell Frank that the president was not coming to visit him. Instead, he was staying with uh, Dean Cosby at his place in <clears throat> Palm Springs. And that just flew Frank off. He had a very short fuse and he just exploded. And from that time after, he wanted nothing to do with them. And if anything, if he could hurt them in any fashion, he would have done it. Uh, he hated JFK after that. 
the Kennedys were very skilled at creating their own enemies. They just had so many people who didn't like them. It was uh, really unusual. I don't remember. I don't know if that's the case in other presidential history of like maybe Lincoln or something like that. But they just made that angered a lot of people. Um, but there's a lot more in this book. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say you're absolutely right. But we're at the 36 minute mark here, Mike. I mean, there's a lot more. There's a lot more to this story. And Sinatra, he lived till 82. And I mean, what else can people expect in the book? And there's an audio book for this too, right? Correct. Right. Um, well, one couple things. One, uh, there was a connection between Frank Sinatra and Harry Reid, the, the deceased senator now, with getting Frank's gaming license in Nevada. So cash exchanged hands, and all of a sudden he received his license back. And then also, when Frank was going for the, his to try to get his license reinstated, he went to the CIA and offered to be, for better term, an unpaid spy for the CIA. And part of that was he said that he could meet with royalty, like in the UK, he could meet with the queen, the prince, prince, and he could meet with royalty and heads of state and VIPs around the world, and they would never suspect that he's working for the CIA. And he wanted to do that. He made the offer several times thinking that they would step in and get him his gaming license back. But they didn't do it. They think, thank you very much, but no, uh, we won't use your services. And the primary reason some sources told me is that the CIA at that time, which most people know, they were already working with the mob. They were trying to kill Castro and so forth. And the last thing they wanted is to bring him in because he was, when he had drank, he had a loose tongue, and they're afraid that, wait a minute, he may say something about what he's doing to one of the mob guys. The mob guys, they'll all of a sudden be known, and they would back off. So they just thanked him for his offer, and he went away. But then he went to the FBI, tried to do the same thing, and they said, no, thank you, <laughs> because a lot of their guys are dealing with the mob. So he tried in a number of ways to... Uh, you want to say work the system and uh he went all the way up but it didn't work right he had a fascinating life now he's kind of like a global world figure like marilyn monroe really like really yes. the kind of name and it was interesting that that he came from kind of a small town in sicily very close to lucky luciano so it like went back to the old country it was yeah he was in a very uh dangerous environment i mean he was a lot of mob people, a lot of it's a lot of violence, just a lot of shooting yeah. and uh, death. Yeah. I mean, on Bugsy Siegel, all that stuff. Great book, really interesting read. Mike, where's the best place for people to get Frank Sinatra and the Mafia murder? Probably the easiest is on Amazon. And then you don't have social media, but you do have contact uh, a website, right? Or what was it? No, no, I don't. No, oh, you don't. So if anybody wants to contact you, you can do it through your publisher, right? Isn't that that's it? right? Correct. So it's yeah, we can do that. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap it up, Mike? No, it's just that uh, I think anybody reads it, they're going to learn a lot about Sinatra they never knew. They're going to learn about politics in the U.S. that they maybe suspected, but they didn't know. Um, so it's it covers a lot of time, and it covers a very volatile time in American history. Yeah, it really does. I mean, there's a lot of information that isn't public that I read in this book. I was really surprised about. So fascinating read. Excellent job. 
Again, the title of the book is Frank Sinatra and the Mafia Murders, and the author is Mike Rothmiller with Douglas Thompson. Just published September 2022, Kindle, audio, and paperback, so you can get it there. Mike Rothmiller, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, take care. Stay there.